The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big welcome to everybody, and especially for folks who are here for the first time. You get to experience Sunday morning when it's not too crowded, which is a nice, not stepping over each other. So, ready for your Christmas gift? <laughs> no, it's it's true. The <clears throat> there's all kinds of different stories in the Buddhist tradition about the most important thing, the most beautiful thing, uh, in a sense, being hidden in plain sight. And there's even a story of there's uh, in Thailand there was this Buddha. You know, they make him big there. And uh, and uh, I think Jack Cornfield tells a story, and it, it was just kind of a very ordinary-looking Buddha. It had like just earth um, clay around it, so they, you know, it was just nobody thought it was a very special Buddha. And uh, and then someday, uh, a little fl- uh, bigger piece of the clay or earth that had the dried earth that had been put around the Buddha flaked off and it was gold underneath, you know. So then of course they cleared it and realized the town realized they had this, you know, amazing golden Buddha, or at least gold leaf Buddha. And those kind of stories <clears throat> are told to help us get curious that there's something really immediate, already here and now, that's the most important thing. And that sort of the story of our lives is looking for that, whatever, the spiritual gold or whatever the most important thing, however we might conceive it, we always look for it somewhere else. Like later when I get my act together, then I'll get that spiritual gold. Or later when I fix my partner, you know, then my life will be great or get the job, or... So we have this very deep habit of postponing, like, I'll be happy, I'll be free, I'll be wise, I'll be kind, later when certain criteria are met. And you know how this goes. We never get there, right? Because we can always... What we get good at doing that game, being that way is always postponing. We get really good at postponing, thinking that it's around another turn, another corner, i got to do one more thing later when that. We do this with our homes. We finally get something that we've been wanting, and then we think about another improvement that would make our home better, or our own body, or our own personality. We fix one thing, and then there's always something more to fix. So the Buddha and other wise people in the past, you know, they realize that this is a setup for continual disappointment and anxiety and and all kinds of afflictive states in our heart and mind. And uh, the wiser folks before us, they realize that there is something here and now. And in a way, the doorway to that, the gateway, 
is what in the Buddhist tradition we call awareness. Right? Because if it's here and now, we have to develop this particular muscle in our mind to be aware, to be present, to be like not to project onto the moment a whole set of meaning about who I am, what I'm here for, what I'm doing. We have to drop that. We have to strip that away so that we can actually have a better, clearer sense of what's here and now. And the first step is humility. Like if we think we know what's here and now, we'll never have a moment of mindful awareness because we're pretty sure we get what it is to be a human being or to have a mind or to have a life and we're just not curious, right? You know, we'd see that Buddha in some little town in Thailand all covered in ordinary brown clay and we see a little gold fleck and we go, oh, somebody put a little fleck of gold on it. You know, we because we've got this very convinced, very certain idea that, no, it's just made up of mud. That's just a stupid mud Buddha. You know, <laughs> nothing special there. And it doesn't matter if, like, there's contrary evidence because we're not paying attention to what's here now. We're paying attention to our fixed ideas about things. The world is this way. This person is this way. This person is this way. And then we spend our whole life defending our fixed ideas about things. It's a very tight way to live. So this humility is not a small first step. To be, you know, like in the Zen tradition, the Zen Buddhist tradition, they talk about it as regaining beginner's mind, having a beginner's mind. Some of you, you know, like I did way back in the early 80s when I started my practice, were very influenced by this book that has been around since maybe uh, 72, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, by one of the earlier Buddhist teachers in this country, Suzuki Roshi, this Japanese person who came in the mid-early 60s and started teaching in San Francisco area. And then they collected some of his teachings and put it into this book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It was one of the first books I read. And it really it changed my life. I mean, I, I was kind of young and ambitious. and I, So now I was ambitious about being free. And so I said, I'm, go- I'm going to San Francisco. You know, he had died by that point in the early 80s. He died in like 72 or 3. And, but I said, I'm going to move so I can practice at the San Francisco Zen Center. So I did. I moved to the Bay Area. Turned out not to be my cup of tea practicing at that center. But um, it worked out in any case. But that book was very influential. And one of the things, he has a chapter, I think it, it says, uh, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities and in expert's mind there are few right it's that's a paraphrase but it's something like that some of you might remember it and it's really true we close the more we're certain the more we think we know the more narrow and constricted our life becomes and the people who are really happy know that they don't know right that's a tell, telltale sign of a wise and happy person they have a lot of confidence, a lot of certainty that they don't know. So they exist 
in a more open state of mind, open state of heart. They move through life and they really show up in a fresh way because they know that they don't know. Like Morris and I might have had a lot of interactions, but none of those past interactions is this interaction. So if I impose on this interaction all of that history, I miss the possibility of whatever this interaction might be or this moment might be. If you've been to common ground a lot in the past, our habit would be to have a a lot of expectation, a lot of ideas about what Mark is going to talk about or what happens at the center or how I'm supposed to be at the center or what I think about all the other people at the center. And that's how we get in this literally imprisoned by our ideas. And it's not about not having ideas or not having the past, like the past history I have with this guy in front of me, Morris. It's about not being confused by our thoughts and ideas and memories, right? They're just thoughts and ideas and memories being known. It's not, they don't have to limit the moment. They don't need to constrict the moment. We don't need to be imprisoned by the past or by fixed ideas. So when we're sitting, you know, we're just, we're going to kindergarten, we're like normal, ordinary life, interacting with people, doing our jobs, figuring out problems. But when we meditate and we're in a more simple container where the cat's in the other room and the cell phone has been shut off and people know to leave us alone for 30 minutes, in that more simple environment of just holding the body relatively still, sitting up so we don't get too sleepy, relaxing, unnecessary tension so we're not getting tight or not having to deal with too much unpleasantness. And then we just practice being in that open, humble state, like not imposing fixed ideas of who I am when I'm meditating, right? But being more in that open state of awe or wonder or, oh, it's like this now. This is being known. It's just this experience. (laughs) That little light show, right? (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Now this. That's a that's another telltale sign is that what would otherwise be sort of an ordinary experience that the conditioned mind, the habit-based mind would just dismiss. Oh yeah, I'm just brushing my teeth or I'm just walking down the hallway or I'm just doing this or doing this, something I've done a million times before. I don't really need to be here. But when there's that state of awareness, the moment, even the most ordinary moments, are very real, very alive, fulfilling in a funny way. Not because the moment is so special, but because the way the mind is relating, relating in an open way, in a humble way, in a don't know way, that so it's the way of relating that makes the moment liberating, freeing, beautiful, loving. Not the moment. It's not like, oh, I'm around a bunch of jerks. That's why, you know, those of you who are going to be with your families, and maybe for some of you that's not a pleasant 
or entirely pleasant experience. I'm, I know for some of you it will be very wonderful. But sometimes it's problematic or you have groups of people you have to spend time with that you don't like. And we just assume the fact that I'm tight, it's because I'm not with the people I want to be with or I'm not in the situation I want to be in. So we always project our suffering. We blame it on the particular conditions that the world is bad. It's oppressive in this way or I've had bad luck in this way or you know, I've made these bad choices in this way so now I'm screwed or things are bad for me. And we, we basically put ourselves in a prison because we don't think there's anything. We have a fixed idea. There's nothing I can do about my misery because it's written in stone, because of what I did or because of the people I'm around or because of the world I live in, the imperfections of the world I live in. Because of those reasons, I'm condemning myself to be unhappy. And then we're certain about that. And so we no longer see if that's actually true. Like whether there would be a way to be free and loving and kind and alive and real and authentic in this moment, even though I'm with these people or in this imperfect world, this oppressive world or this whatever kind of world we're experiencing in that moment. Is our happiness and unhappiness driven by the externals or is it driven by how the mind relates to the externals? That has a lot to do with how things unfold for us. And it's not saying that the externals don't matter. It's saying that the externals are going to be what they're going to be. We get to participate and how the externals unfold, but we're not in charge. Anybody in charge of all the externals in their life? Like how your partner is or how the world is that you inhabit? Like the kind of injustices that are there in our world where people are mistreated for no good reason over and over, right? And some people are privileged and get every good break for no good reason. It's just the way that it is, not that it's fair. It's just the way that it is. So if we're banking on happiness with externals that we're not in control of, we're condemning ourselves to being pushed around by whatever particular external show up for us. Sometimes good, hopefully. Oftentimes not so good. So that, you know, I don't think it's just the Buddhist tradition, but definitely the Buddha as a teacher really emphasized it matters how the mind, how the heart is relating to the conditions that show up for us in our, in our world, in our day, in our moment. And that's always in play. It doesn't matter if it's the most difficult set of circumstances that are showing up for us or the most beautiful, pleasant set of circumstances. It really matters how the mind relates to them. And it's always in play. I can always change how I'm relating to the present moment. Haven't you seen that in your own mind where you have a really negative attitude about something that's showing up in your life and you get yourself in a really tight box, really deep hole, and it's really unpleasant? And then, because there's some wisdom in the mind, 
It just flips. You start relating with a different attitude. And everything changes. It's like we're sitting in meditation and there's a lot of physical discomfort. You know, the knee hurts or the back hurts or something simple like that. And we can just hate it. And it's just like every second, tick, tick, like, ah. Uh, and we're with a group of people, so we can't. It would be too embarrassing to get up and leave, you know. And it's like it can be as torturous as anything just to sit with ordinary physical discomfort. And then we remember, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm practicing. What am I practicing? I'm practicing realizing it really matters how I'm relating to the way it is. And it's always in play. So let me practice relating to the physical discomfort with a different attitude. What's another way to be relating to this? Well, instead of like, yuck, I hate this physical discomfort, I could go, okay. I could like bring a more neutral, equanimous attitude. Okay, it's really intensely unpleasant. Well, can I feel this? Can I relax with this? Can I be intimate with the unpleasantness of these physical sensations in my back? And then how is that? Instead of hating it, pushing it away, or blaming myself or blaming somebody on my pain, I can be intimate with it. I can maybe even have some compassion like, oh, it's not easy having a body sometimes. And I care about that. I bet it's not easy for other people who are in physical discomfort or even worse in the dying process or aging process. I care about all of that. Right? Well, compassion happens to be an enlivening, beautiful emotion. It's not an oppressive state of mind to have compassion for ourselves or compassion for the wider folks who have bodies that sometimes really hurt or are uncomfortable. So this is what we do. You know, when we're sitting, the initial step with sitting is to have some confidence that it matters that it that there's this really potent place of how the mind relates is the mind relating with a fixed view or the is the mind relating with openness is the mind relating without much understanding about what actually causes suffering stress and tension because at being attached to a fixed view is what causes stress. Like even if I'm having really pleasant circumstances, people love me, I'm safe, things are pleasant. But if I get really tight about like these are my things, this is happening to me, I want this to last. Right? There are people who have a lot of good things that are really suffering because they're really attached or they're really wanting even more good things, right? This is the nice thing about our celebrity culture because we see people who are physically beautiful, have a lot of money, have a lot of, you know, adoration, and they're extremely unhappy, miserable people, right? And then it reminds us, well, okay, so maybe it isn't just about external conditions. And we see, hopefully, if we're lucky, we see people who have difficult circumstances who are really relaxed, doing the next thing, 
very friendly, generous, loving human beings. And that always is a bit shocking when we run into those people. We tend to ignore that because it it's it like uh, challenges our fixed views about where happy happiness is. Isn't it funny how sometimes we even tell ourselves stories like, "Oh, they're happy because they're stupid; they don't know better." <laughs> I mean, we don't we wouldn't ever say that out loud, but the kind of underlying thought in the mind is like, "Oh, those simple-minded people." You know, it's like you watch National Geographic and it shows a bunch of people in a, you know, in a place that maybe has less, less affluent or, you know, less uh, developed economy. Kind of agrarian people living off the land or something like that. You know, and they seem to be loving and happy. And we just go, oh, you know, if they only knew how unhappy they actually are. Not, not having the newest cell phone or something like that. Because we're pretty sure that happiness is about having stuff. As opposed to happiness is about how the mind is showing up, how the mind is relating. One of the most provocative teachings from the Buddha is this happiness of renunciation, or you could say the happiness of non-attachment. Being content with the way it is. Not because we couldn't imagine a better way for things to be for us or others in this moment, but content with the way it is because in this moment it is this way. Not that it's like the right temperature or the right clothes or the right, you know, but because it is this way right now. So what would it be like to embrace the conditions of this moment and to do something beautiful? Now remember, doing something beautiful might mean speaking truth to power, you know, like finally having a conversation with your partner about something that's not working in the relationship or have a conversation with the society you live in because it's not working, it's not okay. But it comes from having made peace with the way it is because it is the way that it is. And see, that grounding, that uh, the integrity of that relationship with the present moment really can be the catalyst for an engagement that's very enlivening and liberating. Because if we're always relating to the present moment, it's basically the, the mind, the conditioned mind, what in Buddhism we'd call the ignorant mind, it has this unnamed belief that somehow nature or God has made a mistake and it's not supposed to be this way. And so we're like railing against these natural conditions which, by the way, aren't here to be fair, right? The conditions of the world right now, they're just the way they, they are. It's not about fairness or unfairness. It's just the way that it is. And the question is, can we embrace the way that it is? Can we open and really see clearly, oh yeah, it's like this. 
so that our response, our engagement, isn't based on some delusion that, no, it's not supposed to be this way. I mean, it's kind of an arrogant thing for a lowly human being, an animal basically, to be saying to this great web of causality that has ended up like this in this moment and say, you know what? This is a mistake. doesn't mean that it isn't unfair, but it's not a mistake. It's just been a natural tumbling forward of innumerable causes and conditions, lawful causes and conditions. And in that lawful unfolding, countless beings have been crushed and oppressed and, you know, every number of things have happened to innumerable beings since the beginning of time. And the only question is how to meet this moment, how to relate to this moment in a way that's alive and intimate and compassionate. Like doing something beautiful with this moment, that's what we can do. That's what meditation practice is about. It seems different because we're sort of in a quiet space and the cat's in the other room and the cell phone is off. And, but we're just going to kindergarten to learn how to be authentic, how to show up, how to engage. First, we learned to engage by sitting still, like to really feel what we feel. Then the 30-minute or 45-minute sit ends and we take it on the road, you know, and we go brush our teeth or have breakfast or step outside and have an interaction with another human being. And then we find how difficult it is to not be confused by our mental projections, you know, our ideas about things, and to really stay in that willingness to feel what we feel, willingness to embrace and say, yeah, it's like this now. This person is saying this to me. This is happening to me. I feel this. All of that old trauma is coming to the surface or all this is coming to the surface and it's like this. Can I say yes to this? Not that it should be this way. There's no should about it. It is this way in this moment. And we don't waste our energy saying it shouldn't be this way. We say, yeah, it is this way. What would be a beautiful way to respond, a fearless way to respond, a helpful, compassionate way to respond to given that it is this way, what can be done to take one step, to do one thing, to say one thing, to relate in one way that sets in motion something that's more beautiful, more healing, more just. What can be done in this moment? That's how we change things. Not by wishing it weren't this way or judging, but acknowledging, yeah, it is this way. The histories of oppression and injustice, the sort of stinginess, the histories of greed and aversion and fear and hate. Basically, being animals, right? Acting out our animal nature, tribal animal nature, who's in, who's out. Yeah, and then we get a world like this. So can we see it clearly, not sugarcoat it, not be forgetful, not want a sort of safe, cushy, hallmark card world, but actually inhabit the world we live in and come alive in that world. 
That's why we need kindergarten, because you can sense it's not easy to do that. We need to practice. That's why we go to you know relatively safe, quiet spaces, collecting groups of people where we feel some degree of safety, finding groups that we feel safe in, to practice being intimate with life as it is, to practice dropping our wishful thinking, wanting a world different than the way it is. First, we need to meet the world that we inhabit. Then we can start uh, bringing in some change. But the making things better requires meeting things as they are, our own conditioning, our own habit energies, and then the habit energies of the world that we're inhabiting. We have to meet it instead of thinking there's been some grand mistake, you know, and feel content to blame politicians or to blame history or to blame, you know, some group of people. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes to hear from some other people in the community. Maybe you have your own reflections on this topic or questions about what I've said this morning. Remember, if you're going to speak, point the mic pretty close to your mouth so we can all hear you. What questions or what comments come to mind for you this morning? Yeah, Andrew, please. I'm Andrew. Um, a couple of interesting things came up in this uh, sit today. And um, at first, I um, I noticed it was a pretty like calm sit. And when uh, when I noticed like being lost in thought, I realized that there was also some continuity of mindfulness coexisting with that and that it was just like the thinking and the tension like associated with that that was happening outside of sort of the scope of uh of the mindfulness and then um at one point uh some discomfort came in and uh i've had a lot of practice dealing with discomfort lately and as that sort of intensified instead of becoming like more cause for for like being unmindful it sort of became like a mindfulness bell and i was able to see or like experience in that moment like the the physical like discomfort of trying to push it away and like redirect it towards just like okay just be with this sensation and then what happened is i guess it went away and i forgot about it a a few moments later um but the the most interesting thing was uh I, I was trying to see where the like the tension was coming from, and it, I, I realized that it was from this idea of like doing something coming in, and that that was coming from uh, like trying to turn away from from fear. And I was wondering why I wasn't seeing the fear like as it was coming up, and I, there, I know something interesting about the quality of like the the calm or like the the tranquility and that it felt almost like thick, like fog or like a blanket and that the tendency of the mind, instead of using that calm as like a skillful way of examining the unpleasant things, that it was almost like being used as like a cloak or like as, as though it could be a solution to it. Yeah, that's right. Because when there's samadhi, this tranquility of mind, it can go two ways, as Andrew was saying. It can be used to investigate, and basically, like in terms of the talk today, 
investigate a skillful way to be relating to the discomfort, or the mind can indulge in the tranquility, in the kind of gooey, you know, I forget what word you used, Andrew. Thick? Yeah, yeah. Because, Because tranquility can have that sort of, it's basically a way of, of retreating or secluding from the surface level of what's being felt and seen and experienced. And that's what I mean by indulging. And it's not necessarily bad. It's kind of like a relatively healthy escape. The thing is, you don't actually learn anything from indulging in tranquility, but you get a break. So it can be refreshing. And sometimes when the mind is exhausted, that's exactly what the mind needs. It needs to rest in a very secluded, tranquil, peaceful place for a while. And then it will have enough, a little bit like your cat will take a cat nap, nap, and then it will be feisty again. It will kind of be playful, right? And it's the same thing. Sometimes the mind just needs to crash. And especially if we've been with a lot of physical discomfort, and even if we've been relatively skillful with the physical discomfort, it can get exhausting to be present so that we're not reacting to the pain. And we're just, yeah, I'm there with it. Yeah, it's unpleasant, but I... I'm not going to get tight around it. I'm just going to let it be. But at some point, the mind's tired, and it just wants to disappear for a while. And so to give it a meditation object where that will develop more tranquility and to really distance, don't look at the pain, distance the mind from the pain by paying attention to something else is really nice. It's just like if you have a really stressful life, having a good sleep, is essential, right? So you go into deep sleep in the middle of the night. So for a few moments at least, the mind has completely dropped whatever is causing anxiety in your life. It's not holding the problems. And then when you wake up, you feel better, like maybe I can actually face, look at what needs to be looked at. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, Lisa. Yeah, Mark, thanks for talking about the difference between things should be this way and things are this way. I have several or a few people in my life who live in the world of not shoulds, but shouldn't. The world shouldn't be this way. And I'm wondering if you have suggestions for talking with them when it's hard for me, actually, to be around that, that, difference in attitude well it's really tricky because like when we take you know some kind of injustice going on sexism racism something that's so you know when you pull back some of the layers it's so obvious so real and then it can seem like when someone says that but it is this way that they're condoning it right But what can be helpful is just to see the supporting causes that led things to be this way, but not as a way of dismissing the injustice or the suffering involved, but understanding that, yeah, it's like this. That it's not a mistake. I mean, not a, like, let's not waste our time. Understanding the lawfulness actually helps us get close and respond appropriately in ways that can affect change.
because we understand, oh yeah. It's the same thing when a friend is under a lot of pressure and they start acting out and, you know, are hurtful, you know, insult us or something like that. With a good friend that we know well, we'll see that web of causality. Oh, they're just acting out their pain and I'm not going to personalize their, you know, insulting behavior or something like that. I'm going to give them a lot of space and I know tomorrow or next week they're going to feel so badly about being such a jerk. And I'm not going to really hold it over them, you know, because I see, you know, they're going through a divorce or this is happening and, you know, I'm going to cut them a lot of slack. So this is the same thing with, uh, you know, all the different things in the world is we can, we won't always see the network of causality that why things are the way that they are. But in certain corners that we're familiar with, we see the lawfulness in our own mind, when we're the one who's a jerk or we're the one acting out our biases that have been conditioned in. And we see it in you know full color. Oh my God, you know, I'm being this misogynist pig or I'm being this racist idiot or this whatever. And we see it, right? Should we, is the appropriate response to hate ourselves or to be afraid of that sort of inappropriate behavior? No, the appropriate response is to be intimate, to really understand, oh yeah, oh yeah, when there's this kind of conditioning, then there's this kind of behavior. Yes, it's like this, and this suffering then gets perpetuated, and I care about that. I care enough to see it as it actually is so that I can live differently. And then so that the real question is, do you care about setting in motion something better? And then talk about, well, how do we set in motion a different kind of world? But we have to understand the world. We have to understand the lawfulness of the world to know how to affect change. Because the real change comes with the attitude that we bring to the world we're inhabiting. That changes our actions in the world, the attitude, how we see it. Like the Buddha said, one of the most famous lines from the Buddha, hate does not, hating hate does not cause hatred to cease, but love alone, right? If we meet the hate, the meanness in the world with hate, we add to hate. We don't diminish it. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Time for one last comment. Oops. Okay. Well, you get to be the last person. Oh, oh good. <laughs> uh, I'm Mary Laurel, and I'm just feeling uh, feeling immense gratitude, Mark, for your work for this center. Um, and I'm just so thankful for your life that it unfolded this way, and um, and how how you change the world through through what you do and what you say, and. Um, I think I'm speaking for a lot of us, but I really just felt like I needed to say that. So immense gratitude because, wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and what we try to do when we see ourselves part of something that feels good and beautiful, we look at the causality, right? Like all the women and men who did their practice before and whatever wisdom, whatever compassion we see in ourselves, 
it's just part of this lineage that has been passed down, right? So we feel grateful to our lineage and that allows us to do the best we can in the world. Yeah, so that's why it's not that when we put a Buddha or the other saints or the people before us, we acknowledge them. It's not like this, you know, like w- they're going to save us because they're gone, you know, they're dead. But we're acknowledging the lineage, you know, and the wisdom in the community that we're part of. And we should appreciate that. Like Thich Nhat Hanh says about people, we are the continuation and not a, always a beautiful continuation, right? Like, you know, racism, sexism. We're also the continuation of those streams. But there's also really beautiful parts of the lineage of wisdom and kindness that we get to be part of. Thanks, Mary Laurel. And let's leave it there for today. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being together in community. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.